So again, Romans chapter 11, the first 10 verses. Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I have to continue to remind you and myself that this congregation in Rome understood that there were uh, a people who had a special connection to God who were a part of the congregation. Therefore, uh, Lord's Day worship some even members of the church. And this remains true that there are a people with a special uh, connection to God. But what we need to understand is that even though there are people who have the special connection to God, which I'll explain in a bit, uh, they are not necessarily known by God savingly. To have this connection to God is not necessarily a saving connection to God, and I need to explain. You see, the Bible tells us that every human being is known by God simply by existing Psalm 139 says, where shall I flee from your presence? That's, uh, that's uh, a cry that uh, anyone in the world can and should make. Hebrews 4 says that no creature is hidden from the sight of God. Uh, Jesus uh, says in Matthew 10 even that uh, the hairs of our head are numbered. Uh, everyone, every human being is known by God. The Bible is very clear about that. But there's another kind of people that are known by God in a slightly different way. That, to be sure, but in an additional way. They're known by God because he has revealed himself to them in a rather unique way. Uh, This is the way Israel, as a people, are known by God. Paul himself outlines this in the very beginning of Romans chapter 9. We continue to go to the beginning of chapter 9, appropriately so. God made the Jewish people into a special body, into his people. And at the beginning of Romans 9, Paul tells us that they have received a special name from God, the name Israel. 
And Paul also says that to them belongs adoption and glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. And furthermore, from them has come the Messiah. And so that's a slightly different kind of knowing of God. So everyone uh, ought to see that they are known by God simply by existing, but there are, a, there are a special people who are known by God through a unique connection. But then there are some people, a third kind of people, who are known by God in a saving way. They're known by Him because He has united Himself to them in Christ Jesus. This is to be covenantally known by God, to belong to Him. The Jews received God's covenant promises in a very special way, but to be known by God in a saving way is to trust God's promises by faith in Jesus Christ, to live in a setting in which God's covenant promises are everywhere around you is one thing, but to believe in those promises, to have faith In God's Son, our Savior, Jesus, that's the distinguishing characteristic of those who are known by God savingly. And so this congregation at Rome is uh, grappling with who belongs to God in that saving way. And what Paul is going to teach in this passage is that to truly belong to God is to trust in Christ and Christ alone. And Paul is furthermore going to say that to not trust in Jesus Christ is to fall dangerously deeper into rejection of God. The word rejection plays a significant role in this passage. The sermon this morning is outlined in three parts. The first, I want to spend time in verse 1, that heartfelt question. I want us to hear how sincerely Paul asks that question. And then we'll move from there to consider Paul's illustration of one person in particular, and it does stand out strangely in this passage. Uh, That is the illustration of Elijah. And what Paul wants to show us in the illustration of Elijah is the great power of the gospel. So he begins with a heartfelt question, and then there's an illustration of the power of the gospel in the life of Elijah. And then at the very end of our passage, Paul, in a sense, reframes the question. He asks a slightly different question, and that question is more like this. Who has rejected whom? Who is the one who is actually rejecting, if not God? Who is rejecting well, the heartfelt, heartfelt question of verse 1, it, it's, it's clear before us. Paul says, I ask then, explicitly, this is a question, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And the question might be phrased in a number of ways and still capture uh, how uh, Paul is articulating it in the Greek. Uh, we could uh, rephrase the question like this, has God given a people a special status, making them his people only to push them away? That's what's behind that word rejection. It's a pushing away. If God had had no affection for them all, for them at all, it might actually be excusable for God to reject them. Meaning, if God didn't have any attention for these people at all, no special connection with them, it might actually be excusable for God to simply push them away. In fact, uh, God hardly knew them. But God actually knows them very well. He's named his people, he has privileged his people, and he has preserved his people. And Paul asked the question, has he now then pushed those people 
away from him after he has already connected himself to them in some way? Well, the answer is there, right? I mean, we see it. Paul says, by no means. So he's clear. Uh, the answer is no. God has not uh, drawn them to himself only to push them away. But I want us to not skip the question too rapidly. I want us to think about this question as being a very personal question, not theoretical, not even theologically formally understood. It's, it's very personal. It, it has to do with people in the church at Rome making sense of their church body. There are, there are Jews who are a part of the church body, and, and they struggle with trusting in Jesus. It seems as though they have special hurdles that would uh, prevent them, obstacles that would uh, uh, cause them to stumble before they are able to really trust that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But in their church, there are people who are not ready to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And a lot of those people happen to be Jews. And the folks in the church at Rome, they want to know how exactly to approach these individuals. Do you you see, it's actually a really personal question. Paul, how are we then to approach them? If God has rejected them, well, then the gospel, we would say, works in most cases, but not these cases. They seem to be especially uh, poorly disposed to receiving Jesus as their Savior. And Paul, would you please tell us, if faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, if God has rejected them, how can the gospel be the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? If God's rejected them, can the gospel still work for them? I preach a saving message, but God's rejected them. They'll never receive that saving message. And so how then are we to relate with them? And and so the question actually has a really personal feel to it. And if we don't understand that, I fear we won't understand that Paul's answer is itself a very personal, sincere, heartfelt answer. God says, of course, verse 1, he says, God, uh, Paul says that God has not rejected them. Let's be very clear. By no means, God has not rejected them. But the proof that Paul has for God not rejecting them, if you don't see it, take note, the proof that Paul has that God has not rejected them is the proof of his own life. He actually uses his own salvation as an example. He uses his own spiritual sense of assurance as an example. In the Greek, it's impossible to miss Paul's emphatic answer. He begins with, I am, ego emi, I am, I am. Look at me, he says. Despite the hard truths, Paul has been teaching that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, Romans 9, 6. What he says here is, look at me. I'm a follower of Jesus I'm a follower of Jesus saved by faith, a recipient of God's care through his good grace. And yes, I'm also an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. But where Paul begins is he begins with his own life. Who am I? 
someone who has been saved by God's grace, not by anything I brought to the table, not by that special connection that I have with God as a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul has said over and over again that salvation comes by grace, and he holds himself up as an example. And Paul's next steps are actually very personal as well. He defers to his own life a personal testimony, the kind of testimony we're called to make as believers in Jesus, to use our own lives as an example of the goodness of God. That's why it's so important that people know that we are a gospel-saturated people. The Christians in Rome, though, they still have to deal with this matter that there are people around them who seem to belong to Israel in every way, but who do not call on the name of Jesus for salvation. And they're asking Paul, what should we do? What should we do with them? And Paul seems to be saying this, whatever you do, my brothers and my sisters in Rome, whatever you do, do not assume that God has rejected them. That does you no good. Don't assume that God has rejected them. And, and, and to hear this is actually disarming. Because what Paul is saying to them is he's saying you cannot write anyone off. It's too easy. Yes, God hasn't rejected that person, but has rejected that person, and you so then can turn and walk away. Paul says that as a Christian, I cannot write anyone off. I do not have God's authority to reject someone because God has himself rejected them. He has not rejected them. And Paul has told us, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And people in Rome want to say, yes, Paul, but not those people or not that person. <laughs> well, the next question Paul would ask, well, so that's true. They don't come to God through Christ Jesus so the next question that Paul has for them is, how is it that that person then is going to call on him in whom they have not believed? He's answered that question in Romans 10. How is it that they are going to come to that place where they call on him in whom they have not yet believed? Well, we, we know the answer. I'm to go to them and I'm to preach to them the saving promises of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm called to do. Paul's saying to the Roman Christians, do not assume that God has rejected them. Go to them and preach the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, I think it's actually helpful for us to recognize just in this question and in Paul's answer the pain behind this discourse. They've, off, they've offered a sincere question to Paul. Has God rejected them? They seem so stoically opposed to Jesus. And Paul has said, you cannot act as if God has rejected them. He has not rejected them. You cannot say that. And that means there's nothing left to do but to preach to them uh, the uh, beautiful uh, picture of the power of the good news to uh, work in their lives if they would only believe in Jesus. But that leaves them in a very painful place. 
There are people around them who seem to hate Jesus. And Paul is telling me to do, uh, giving me no permission to do anything other than to preach the good news to them. That's painful. We should understand that as painful. I'd like to hear almost anything. I'd like to hear a special discipleship program or uh, an evangelism program for these individuals. Uh, I'd like to uh, be able to put a little label on them in such a way so that I can uh, uh, treat them uh, separately and, and deal over here with people who seem to be more worthy of my time. But, but uh, Paul says that God hasn't rejected them, so preach the gospel. Yes, but it's hard to do that. Yes, it is. And right at verse 2, wouldn't you know it, what Paul does is Paul gives a wonderful illustration of the power of the good news. The, the power of the good news that even someone like Elijah, well, he missed. That's what the church at Rome needs to hear. They need to hear that it's possible to just take the power of the gospel for granted, to forget how powerful it is and to move on. And it's important for us as Paul transitions to give us this illustration of the power of the good news in verses uh, 2 uh, through uh, 6. Uh, we have to know that we're not the first ones to feel this way. We're not the first ones to feel as though there are some people that just seems like we need to write them off. They reject and they reject and they reject. And it looks like God himself has rejected them. They're certainly not receiving in any uh, uh, increased interest in my proclamation of the gospel to them. If it looks like God has rejected people, well, apparently Elijah felt the same thing. And that's what Paul wants to remind the Roman Christians, and he wants to remind our congregation of this as well. Elijah is a prophet of God, and uh, uh, twice... He says to God, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. Elijah actually says this to God twice. Isn't that remarkable that Paul would take us to an example of Elijah's life that's, that's really negative? It's not a positive example of Elijah's life. Elijah, he feels that the rejection of God is all around him and that it's deeply severe so that God has actually rejected everyone but himself. What an arrogant thing to say. We don't know um, how deeply Elijah meant what he said, but he says it twice. I'm the only one who believes. Elijah, he trusts in the name of Jesus for salvation, but nobody else around him does. Maybe God has rejected each and every one of them. Now, there's a sense in which Elijah is rather justified. I mean, he feels this way because the leadership of his era is so terrible. Uh, King Ahab, he worships Baal, uh, the god of rain and storms, and he worships Asherah, a fertility goddess symbolized uh, by vegetation. This is the leadership of Elijah's land. It's corrupt, but Elijah feels this way not merely for the leadership. He feels this way because the culture around him is wretched. Elijah feels like uh, even throughout a three-year famine and drought, nobody turns to God. They ought to know better. And times are desperate, three years of drought, and yet they're not turning to God. 
They trust that Baal will one day bring rain, and they trust that Asherah will one day sprout vegetation. And so there's a real sense then that Elijah, he's justified. His world is so corrupt. Surely he's the only one who believes, and surely God has rejected everyone else. But the gospel is more powerful than even Elijah thought. An American poet by the name of Jane Hirschfield says this. She's writing in California. She says, It is foolish to let a young redwood grow next to a house. Have you heard that line? It's foolish to yet to let a young redwood grow next to the house. Even in this one lifetime, you will have to choose that great calm being or this clutter of soup pots and books. Already the first branch tips brush at the window. I love that poem. And Elijah, he's not hearing the tips of the branches scrape against his house as God's gospel does its work in a world that, from, from Elijah's perspective, is utterly hateful and rejected. And Paul makes this assertive statement in verse 2. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. How troubling is verse 2. God foreknew them. Now, Paul has only used this word once before. He used it in Romans 8, verse 29, when he says, Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God knew who was saved before anyone else did. And Paul goes on to say uh, that those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom God called, he also justified. That's Romans chapter 8. But what is Paul saying about God here in this passage? What does he want the Roman Christians to understand? He wants them to understand that God is himself the author of salvation, which means he knows who is saved and who is not. Elijah. He thinks that he is the only Christian, and he says to God, I'm the only one who's jealous for you, God. And he's wrong. And what does God say to Elijah? Well, Paul, Paul quotes in verse 4 what God says to Elijah. God says, I have kept for myself. Do you hear how haughty God's words are in verse 4? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, he miscounted by at least 6,999. In verse 2, look what, look what uh, Paul says. He, he says that God knows who is saved. And in verse 4, uh, Paul says that God alone does the saving. I've kept for myself 7,000. And then keep going in the passage in verse 5. Paul says that in the present day, the application is this. At the present time, there is a remnant I have chosen by grace. And then jump down to verse 7. You'll see that God calls Christians the elect. God has been at work, and Elijah, he missed it. God has planted a redwood in Elijah's world right next to his house, and Elijah didn't see it, or he didn't want to see it. But God, in his infinite wisdom and power and electing grace, caused the gospel to grow nonetheless. 
And just when Elijah thinks that he is alone in the world as the only Christian and that God has simply rejected this wicked world, there's a thin scrape of a branch against his window. God has been at work through his gospel. He knows who are his, and he has kept them for himself. He has chosen them. They are there. The gospel changes lives. The gospel grows like a mustard seed or like leaven, but it grows nonetheless, and God has not rejected the world. Now, do you believe that that redwood tree is growing in our own world today? This world, our world, it's not so wicked that God has turned his back and walked away. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. We may think that we are in charge of the gospel. We certainly uh, are commanded to preach it. We persuade people to believe in the name of Jesus. We perhaps feel that. I heard the gospel, and, and, and I believed in Jesus. But let no one here in this room this morning think for a moment that our preaching of the gospel is what saves anyone. Your favorite evangelist, Billy Graham, Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Stott, Chuck Swindoll, your favorite evangelist and my favorite evangelist never saved a soul. Only God saves. And you may feel that you chose God, but the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says that you were saved because God chose you by grace and grace alone. As Paul says in verse 6, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Now this is not a passage, mind you, that says everything uh, about what the Bible has to say regarding predestination and election. But in this one instance, let's not be like Elijah. Let's not be like Elijah. He thought he knew who were saved, but only God knows. The gospel is God's power to save and to save by grace. And just like Elijah, we need the reminder to preach the gospel and to expect the power of the gospel to be like a redwood tree that overturns our tidy little expectation of who is and who is not a candidate for salvation. So long as the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Let's not assume that God has rejected someone and walk away. Let's tell them, tell them what the Bible says, that to truly belong to God, one must place their trust in Christ alone. And let's preach that over and over again, shall we? Now, Paul seems in the very end of the passage in verses 7 through 10 to pose a new question. He begins with this, this heartfelt question about those who we think should be believers but aren't, and uh, we're wondering if, well, maybe God has simply rejected them, and, and, and then we could reject them as well. But Paul says no. And then he tells us to expect the gospel to work in ways that surprise even diligent followers of Jesus like Elijah himself. And now Paul returns to that matter again in the life of the church of those who refuse to place their trust in Jesus Christ. It looks like God has rejected them, but Paul suggests a better way to understand those whom God seems to have rejected. Instead of asking if God has rejected them, it would be better to ask have they rejected him. 
And so when we look at the world today, there are actually a myriad of ways of not following Jesus. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, In a a new book uh, by uh, Brian uh, Rosner on Christian identity, this is an Australian New Testament scholar. He says uh, about change in society today, uh, he says, looking back in history, you can see that traditional communities are like rivers while modern societies are oceans. And, And this is what he means by that. He says a river has a direction and it carries you along with the current just as traditional societies direct their members in a particular way. But Rosner, looking, looking out at contemporary culture, he says more and more that actually is changing. He says in modern societies there's actually no current. We can choose to go in any direction or no direction at all or to shift direction with every change of wind. And Paul seems to suspect that this is happening in Rome. He pulls from these several passages as he closes out this section from the Old Testament to show that the people who reject Jesus, uh, they tend to get mired in that rejection. They find innumerable ways to reject Jesus. And in verse 8, Paul seems to be reciting from memory uh, Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 6. And then at the, at the close of this passage in 9 through 10, uh, he is uh, diving into the middle of Psalm 69. And in each of these cases, again, he seems to just be uh, sifting through the Old Testament. In each of these cases, uh, he is giving us a picture of rejection of God, almost like rejection of God is a feedback loop of rejection that when a person rejects God, they grow deeper in that rejection. And Brian Rosner says the world that we live in is a world that tolerates those myriad of ways of rejecting Jesus. World societies are like an ocean. Swim wherever you want. It makes little difference. Now, Paul, he uh, actually says something interesting, but he says it in Romans chapter 1. And there Paul says that uh, God has actually made himself plainly known to this world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. They've been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. And Paul says in Romans 1.20 that all humanity is without excuse. God's making himself known. But then Paul, he actually describes this and he says some things that feel like what Brian Rosner says about world societies today. Paul says that people, instead of trusting this revelation of God and following Jesus, something else happens. In the ocean of modern society, there's room in the water to twist and turn. Paul says that they suppress the truth. They become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened. They exchange the glory of God for idols. He says uh, in Romans 124 exactly what he means. He says in their rejection of Jesus... God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. And a few verses later, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then a few verses after that, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And in the modern ocean of options for wickedness, God, he slowly, according to his own wisdom and for his own purposes, he lets us eat our own wickedness. Now, this picture of swirling and directionless cycles of our refusal to bow before the Lord Jesus, 
This is what Paul wants us to see in the world around us. This is what Paul wants the Roman Christians to understand. This that you're seeing, my brothers and sisters in Rome, this is not God's rejection of humankind. This is humankind's rejection of God. And slowly but surely, those who reject God get mired in that rejection. You see, Paul is saying that to to truly belong to God is to trust in Christ alone. But to not trust Christ, well, that's to fall dangerously deeper into your own rejection of God. That's what Paul wants the Roman Christians to understand as they look around the world. Don't make an excuse for yourself and say that God has rejected them and then you reject them as well. Understand a few things about how the rejection of humanity works. And I want to conclude the sermon by by sharing with us three things that we need to understand about the rejection of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul wants the Romans to understand because their temptation is to walk away and to not share the gospel because God has, after all, rejected them. And as we see people who reject God grow deeper in their wickedness, we don't want to touch them. They grow in their filth. And we seem to give ourselves more permission to turn away from them and preach the gospel to someone who seems in our eyes more worthy of our attention or of our speaking. And Paul will have none of it. But there's three things that we need to understand about the world's rejection of Jesus. And the first is this. We need to understand the path of this rejection. All manner of rejection is tolerated in our world today. You know that and I know that. In fact, rejecting Jesus has become extremely fashionable. It's almost as if it is a connection point of being a part of the world. Yes, we all hate Jesus. Paul says in Romans 1 that those who reject Jesus, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. But they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And what we need to understand about the path of rejection is that this life of rejection in a person's heart, it tends to grow and it tends to get worse over time. And in God's wisdom, not ours, but in God's wisdom, those who reject God are susceptible to descend deeper into that rejection, to excuse it more readily, to bind together with those who also reject Jesus And they're very likely to die in that rejection with a stern resolve. That's Romans 1. And that's hard to hear. But Paul starts his letter with that. We need to understand that this is what rejection looks like. There's no such thing as a soft rejection of Jesus Christ. This is the very path of rejection. May God have mercy on those who reject him. The second thing we need to understand is not merely the path of this rejection, but the subtlety of this rejection. Dan Kyes, or Dick Kyes rather, says this. He says that those who reject God, they devise for themselves far more comfortable gods than the God of the Bible. And we need to understand that as we go into the world to proclaim the gospel, 
that many people don't think about themselves as rejecting Jesus haughtily. They just have made for themselves a more comfortable version of Jesus, a more comfortable version of God. And they may not say it that way, but they love their Jesus and their God better. There's a subtlety in this rejection of Jesus. And we as Christians who are called to proclaim the gospel, we need to understand this about the audience with whom we're speaking to. Not only are they on a path of rejection that is actually very, very dangerous for their soul, but they have found comfort in this rejection. And we can't grow faint of heart when we are preaching the gospel to people who seem to have nothing but antipathy for what we're saying. They turn their heads and go about their lives. The rejection that they're experiencing is actually a very subtle feeling. But this is the most important thing that we need to understand about their rejection of the gospel. Not merely the path of this rejection, it could lead them to damnation, and not merely the subtlety of this rejection, that it fools them and gives them a sense of comfort, but we as Christians need to understand the destroyer of this rejection. How will it be dealt with? Well, this is the good news of the gospel. And we must never doubt the power of the gospel to save. While it seems perhaps foolish, the power of the gospel is the most powerful force in all the world. That is the force that is powerful enough to destroy the rejection of a world that refuses to bow the knee at Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the great problem of the church is that she has forgotten who she is. And I wonder if as American evangelicals we are uh, close to that. We are a body of people who hold out the power of salvation, the power to lead someone from the domain of darkness into eternal and abundant life. And we may think that there has got to be some special technique or some uh, special program for a world as corroded and disgusting and horrible as our world. But Elijah was given nothing special. And nor are we. Nothing aside from that which is truly the destroyer of rejection. The gospel of God. The path of rejection is real. The subtlety of rejection is real. But my brothers and sisters, let us not forget the power of the gospel to grow a redwood tree and turn over the entire world for the sake of our Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you know how to save us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that little theologians and big theologians here would not be afraid to tell people the hope that is within us, the work that has been done to us, the powerful strength of the gospel to lead us into true peace, true shalom. Oh, Heavenly Father, remind us that your gospel is the power strong enough to destroy the wickedness of the world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.